Hello, everyone. A very warm welcome. I'm Bronwyn Maddox. I'm director of the Institute for Government. And many people here in the room, a very warm welcome to those of you online. Well done for those like West Streeting who have managed to get here around the ferocious security, both Jubilee and other kinds, that is around this part of town right at the moment. Well, I'm really looking forward to this discussion with West Streeting who, as you know, is Labour MP for Ilford North, Shadow Secretary of State for Health and Social Care, which is a lot of what we're going to be talking about. And he previously served as Shadow Minister for Schools and Child Poverty and Shadow Exchequer Secretary to the Treasury. And just back, as the FT noted in a lovely long piece from a trip to Israel, um, looking at its health care. We'll come on to the headline mm. a bit later, maybe. How are you doing on the water? Very good, yeah. Go. Fine, thanks. Good thanks. I haven't been running across Whitehall. Um, very warm welcome to you, Wes. Very warm welcome to everyone here and online. Just a few housekeeping things before we plunge right in. If you're watching online, please do send in your questions. Once the event begins, that's really now. Some, some have come in already, and that's terrific. Thank you. If you can give your name and where you're um, watching from, that is terrific. It really helps and helps to get a balance of, of things. Those in the audience here can raise their hand, obviously, when we get to questions. Obviously, I know where you are. And um, we have mics coming along. We're going to be live tweeting from IFG events using the hashtag IFGWestTreating. Please do follow and tweet along, and we'll have a video and audio recording of this up within 24 hours. Thanks to the IFG team who are handling all that. Well, as I said, I'm really looking forward to this. Um, there couldn't be a better time, in a way. There's a, a certain amount of live politics in the air, which we will come on to. Um, although the Prime Minister won the confidence vote, the last few days have put even more of a question over what Labour wants to do in all its plans, and including its health plans. And we're going to dig into that in some detail. But whereas perhaps we can start with just the, the, the very live news. We've got headlines out there saying, I think the, the Financial Times again, this is as bad as victory gets. Is it as good for Labour as the headlines are saying? Well, I think it's good for Labour, but bad for the country. And what Conservative MPs have done is set, I think, a very dangerous precedent that says that a Prime Minister can lie to the House of Commons, lie to the country, break the laws that he makes, and get away with it. And what I don't think those 211 or so Conservative MPs who voted for Boris Johnson, I think what they don't realise yet that they've done is take the toxicity and radioactivity of Boris Johnson and pollute the Conservative Party with it. Because there is no space, no hiding room now for the Conservative Party in the future to say that was all Boris Johnson, wasn't that a terrible mistake, nothing to do with us. You know, the entire cabinet have been out on the record defending Boris Johnson. A majority of the Conservative Parliamentary Party have been out defending Boris Johnson. And they've been defending the indefensible. The other thing I find really interesting is the, the way in which they've gone about it, which I think must surely be an affront to people who consider themselves traditional Conservative voters and to um, the kind of sensibilities that motivate traditional Conservative voters. How is it that you have members of the Cabinet out arguing yesterday that it is somehow undemocratic in a parliamentary democracy to hold a Prime Minister to account for his conduct and the conduct of his government on the basis that 
he leads a party that won the last general election. I mean, this is, we don't have a presidential system in the UK. I, by the way, I wouldn't make this point probably more, this is not the retail argument I'd make to the voters, but it's the Institute for Government. I think it's really interesting from a kind of constitutional, democratic, parliamentary point of view that you've got Conservative MPs out there who don't seem to understand the parliamentary democracy, the parliamentary sovereignty they claim to have been defending um, only a few years ago. Um, they've also been out making a whole range of arguments which I think are Trumpian in terms of their attacks on the media, somehow saying this is a media agenda. Well, last time I checked, the, the Daily Telegraph was a pretty conservative newspaper, uh, and I, I haven't noticed the Damascene, Damascene conversion um, in terms of their political leanings, and I think the front page of their paper today in particular is damning to the government. And the third thing is just how destructive the, um, the Conservative Party civil war is for their prospects for the next general election, and not simply because of the old adage about divided parties, um, and who am I to throw stones in that regard, having been an MP since 2015. It's, it's for me, the, the, the standout moment yesterday was the interview with Nadine Dorries, and not just because it's an interview with Nadine Dorries, and that's always a popcorn moment, where in the office you turn the TV up and all tune in, do you wonder what mad stuff she's gonna come out with today? Um, for, for Nadine Dorries to say on camera to the entire country, that the Conservative government's pandemic preparedness was, and I quote, um, you know, inadequate, I just think is extraordinary. Specifically, and Jeremy Hunt. Yeah, uh, and uh, she, you know, she, she was doing she was it in the context of going after Jeremy Hunt, but this is the woman who was in the Department for Health as the pandemic broke out. She's a former health minister, and she is admitting what we've been arguing, which is the government hadn't taken pandemic preparedness seriously. And it's not just Nadine Dorries that's been writing election leaflets for the Labour Party at the next um, general election. The other um, really big moment I thought yesterday was Jesse Norman's letter. Not because Jesse Norman's a household name and you know, voters across the land are going to say, well, God, Jesse Norman's letter, like, oh, let's just hold, hold the front page. It's more that it was just a brilliant, beautifully written exposition of the failure of the Conservatives, not just in relation to Partygate, but in relation to their inability to govern any longer, their lack of mission, their lack of focus, their lack of delivery. Right across the board, this is a government that's failing on its own terms, right. it's failing on the terms that we would We're set for them, and I think it is why they need a period of opposition to sort themselves out. Wes, thank you for that. The, uh, opening statement when I was saying to you next door, might you by any chance be prepared to talk about... Yeah, and I said I wouldn't go on too long I, about I, that, but yeah. you, you got me going. <laughs> and we might indeed come back to that, and I suspect there are going to be questions about it. But they, all right, th th thank you for that. And there have been many memorable moments. Um, let's use that, and you were, you were referring to Nadine Doris and her, uh, indeed, a, a, a direct attack on, on Jeremy Hunt and the preparedness. Let's, let's use that as a, as a reason to go into your, your brief um, health and what you think the NHS should now learn from the pandemic? Well, I think it's not just what the NHS needs to learn. I think it's what we need to learn um, as politicians and, and as a country, because there are so many challenges now facing the NHS, and crisis has become a devalued currency in political discourse in this country, partly because we've had so many genuine crises in the short space of time. But it is no exaggeration, I think, to describe what the NHS is going through as the biggest crisis in its history. And we've become used to, in the last decade, this notion that as winter approaches, kind of like something from Game of Thrones, winter is coming. Therefore, like Father Christmas, we have an NHS winter crisis. Um, but 
you know, it, it, the NHS is in a state of permanent crisis, I think, now. And the kinds of pressures we're experiencing at, at this time of year resemble winter, and there's no sense of that kind of changing. And the, and, the, though, and actually, if you look back at the two winters through the pandemic, it is astonishing, old tribute to the, the, the NHS people, and the family, but it's astonishing how much of the crisis was averted. I'm not, I'm not decrying this strain on the people. No, they uh, did a remarkable job. Yeah. And, you know, you, you won't find me bashing... NHS leaders or NHS staff for the work that they are and have been right. doing. I think they've done a remarkable job against the most challenging, unimaginable circumstances. Um, but for me, and this is partly um, not just in terms of um, objective policy reflection, but also about um, the politics of where we'll be at the next election, that what the, cons the story the Conservatives will want to tell is that the record high uh, elective care backlog that we see is because of COVID, um, the pressure that staff are under is because of COVID. The financial challenges because of COVID. And I think the lesson of the pandemic, which relates directly to Comrade Doris' um, observations about poor preparedness, is that you know, the COVID explains some of the pressure that the NHS is under. And of course, it's having an impact. But it doesn't explain why we went into the pandemic with NHS waiting lists already at a record four and a half million, why we went into the pandemic with 100,000 staffing vacancies, why we went into the pandemic with 112,000 vacancies in social care, which left the NHS dangerously, uh, and the country, right, so dangerously so and avoidably so let exposed. Me, let me take that point. Tony Blair, of your party, more or less, um, said, he um, called it in his, his uh, autobiography, a pan panic, all, all this talk about pandemics, obviously he's, he's, he's been, um, had that quote thrusted in many, many times since. Um, but there was a, a, a sense before the pandemic that, uh, you know, running the, the NHS to, to, to focus on the challenges that could be seen right there and not spending too much money on preparedness for something that might not happen. Now that thing has happened. So what are you, what are you taking from the pandemic? Should, so, yeah, we, I think should we st staff and equip it to prepare for future ones? You have to build in resilience. And this is one of the things that I'm, I think about a lot because there is a fine line between um, additional capacity that helps you to kind of go with ebbs and flows and to plan for the unexpected and what would be decried as waste. Mm. Um, you know, if you've got that bed occupancy is a really good indicator of this, you could argue that you know, high levels of bed occupancy is a, is a sign of efficiency. You know, if you've got lower levels of bed occupancy, well, that's excess space that you're not using. Is that really good use of money? Um, but I think you've got to, you do have to design in some, some capacity. Um, I think the, the lesson of the pandemic was that the, the pandem pandemic preparedness exercises weren't taken seriously enough. But also, um, it is just the case that the government spent more than a decade under-investing in the NHS. Okay, so you would like there to be some pandemic capacity there on top of what the NHS is doing as well? Yeah, well, I mean, we, we, when we published our plan on living well with COVID, one of the things that we said was that we need to run germ games to prepare for pandemics mm. and to build in that kind of, um, that kind of capacity. We do need to be able to do things like scaling up vaccination rollout without impacting on everyday NHS um, operations. And that's why we said we'd have a kind of standing jabs army of volunteers ready to be mobilized for that kind of um, eventuality. But I also think that it would be a mistake to come out of um, the pandemic without thinking seriously about 
what the, the future of health and social care as a system should look like and how you reform it. It would be a particular trap for Labour, I think, to just talk about um, NHS improvement and reducing the backlog and delivering better healthcare just in terms of investment and resources and not thinking about reform because I think the lesson of the last Labour government is the three R's of health and social care. It's resources plus reform delivers results. And I think one of the things that the Tories are struggling with is that, albeit belatedly, they are now putting more money into the NHS because of the big backlog. Um, they're making arguments to the country about higher taxes in order to fund the, um, the NHS, but they're scratching their heads wondering why it's not really delivering the results. Now, partly because Andrew Lansley destroyed all of the architecture that enables Secretaries of State to be able to really drive reform and to drive performance standards in the system. Um, but it is also because I don't think they yet have a very clear sense of what they want to do with the health and social care system overall, let alone a plan for how to get there. Right. And I have so to I'm, say... I'm, I'm going to come on to these, these points and, and some of the things you've tucked in there, a lot of interesting points, including uh, the Lansley reforms, what you do. But I just, I, I really want to stop this. You're saying resources, I'll say money. What, um, they're not quite the same thing. But I know but money doesn't do three R's, does it? No. I, I <laughs> and I'm resisting your, your uh, neatness of your rhetoric. There's another one. Um, how would you like British people to think about the funding of the NHS? Because, you know, we've all seen the numbers. Um, how well, yeah. It feels as if almost how, you know, to keep standards just where they are, even not where people uh, might like them, takes a rising share of GDP. And it is yeah. very hard with an aging population, with all the pressures we know of new medicine, which is terrific, all these things coming through. It is very, very hard without uh, this, this ballooning away um, to, to get the NHS the funding that the rhetoric would suggest that politicians want it to have. And you know the joke about this becoming a health service with a small country attached, but the reality of this yeah. squeezing out other public services it confronts every government. Yeah. So how would you like, we can get into all kinds of detail, which we will, about, about wages and, and, and so on, but how would you like British people to think about this, this, this funding? So there's an argument I'd make to the voters and, and actually the same argument I'd make to the Treasury, and then there's the flip side of the argument that I'd make to the health service. So the argument I'd make to the voters and the Treasury is that investment in health and social care it is, an, an, it is exactly that. It's an investment in our future. It's an investment in our health and well-being. It gives us a sense of security of knowing that from cradle to grave, we receive quality care where we need it, when we need it. That's the essential foundation, I think, of a civilised society. That is the founding mission of the NHS, which still commands enormous public um, support. You know, it is true to say the NHS is something akin to a national religion. People mm. really believe in it. Um, and to the Treasury, I would say that if you are looking for a way to stimulate growth in the economy, particularly when you look at levels of economic inactivity and the numbers of people who are not just unemployed, but seemingly out of the labour market altogether, if you want to get those people active in the labour market again, you've got to invest in their healthcare. And you've also got to understand that, you know, focusing on prevention in particular means that you're spending hundreds of pounds fixing problems that people might have, whether with physical or mental health, than thousands, if not hundreds of thousands of pounds down the line because you failed to get it early. So and this, is, this is one of your answers about how to pay for it, get, uh, improve people's health, get more people back into work, 
Yeah, it's an argument I'm making to Rachel Rees and it's a work in progress. On the flip side of the coin, um, what I would say to the NHS um, is that we should not be complacent about the fact that healthcare spending now accounts for a huge proportion of departmental expenditure, a significant proportion of the country's GDP. And I think the public feel a sense of real jeopardy and anxiety about the future of the NHS. And there are siren voices on the right that have always been there who say this system is simply not sustainable. And shouldn't we look at an insurance-based model or shouldn't we look at um, people paying for certain types of, of health care in addition to the ones they, they already pay for? So and I don't think we should be complacent about that. So um, as well as making the case to the Treasury for greater investment in health and social care, the, the thing I would say to the NHS and, um, and, and social care leaders is you, you can't be complacent about demonstrating you're spending that money well. And I, I won't be able to be complacent about demonstrating that we're spending that money well, well if I'm the Secretary of State for Health and Social Care. Um, and that's why I think we need to think not just about um, how we deal with the elective care backlog, which is a huge challenge, but how we do that alongside reforming the system so that in the longer term, we're reducing cost pressures on the NHS, um, which exist through entirely avoidable conditions, right. particularly things like chronic disease, for example. Let's just st stay on this point about reform. Um, because I'm interested in, in what you've got in mind and incidentally why it re reduced cost pressures. You said in your, your previous answer and tucked in there, uh, wanting more control, uh, not liking the Lansley reforms. What, what does that mean for NHS England? More ministerial control over what it does? Well, look, I think it certainly means accountability and understanding that accountability through the Secretary of State and through Parliament is public accountability. And I think that that's not just about NHS leadership, it's also about public accountability within the NHS more generally. Um, I don't think it's acceptable in today's day and age that people have to wait uh, a long time to get through to a GP at eight o'clock in the morning in order to book an appointment. I don't think it's acceptable in today's day and age that if you're waiting for a call back from your GP or from your hospital, you're told it will come sometime between nine and five. If you don't answer, it will be considered a cancelled appointment. Um, so it's, it's, it's about, a very in terms of our everyday interaction as patients, it's also about the way in which NHS leaders feel accountable for spending significant sums of public money and, and, to, and delivering results. In terms of just, because yeah. this is a point about structure is important, yeah. the area where I'm probably treading most cautiously and carefully is around structural reform because I am really conscious of the fact that in addition to all of the challenges the NHS faces in terms of health provision, they are also dealing with a whole series of ongoing and continue to roll out government reform agendas, some of which are pulling in different directions. So what I don't want to do is say to a system that's already burned out, exhausted, and dealing with the biggest crisis in its history, and pulling its hair out at competing, um, lopsided, misguided government reforms, don't worry everyone, what I've got up my sleeve is a new top-down reform agenda, which I haven't even discussed with you yet. So um, in terms of structural reform, that's the area where I'm probably treading most carefully and cautiously. Yeah, and structural reform of any kind just burns up people's time and energies, uh, even, even if it uh, proves to improve things, and they don't all do that. So let's dig into some of the, the detail. What would you do about waiting lists? So there's the... Um, okay, so I'm not going to answer it. There's lots and lots yeah, of questions there, there, on that thing. There are immediate... Yeah, and I'll try and be more succinct. No, um, well, no, 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 no. There are some immediate, um, there are some immediate things government can and should be doing. 
which I think would make a practical difference. And then there's a fundamental thing that absolutely must be done. Um, I don't understand why, when staff are retiring early from the health service, for no other reason that there is a financial disincentive because of pension rules, we haven't just fixed yeah. the pension rules so that people can stay in the service for mm. longer. I think it is crazy that hasn't happened. I don't understand why when we have a shortage, there are 800 medical graduates at last count that haven't been given junior doctor's places. Put those people to work. I don't understand how it is when we know that there is a, a significant number of people going through the front door of acute hospitals and being delayed coming out of the exit door of acute hospitals because social care provision isn't good enough, that the NHS has made, or the government have made an argument that says, we're going to raise your taxes to fund social care, but social care isn't going to get any of it for years, if ever. You know, it, it takes seven years to train up doctors and nurses. Why aren't we investing in social care staff so that we, we are preventing, from people, you know, preventing people from needing to go through the front door of a hospital because there's proper community care, but also we're speeding up delayed discharges? Um, and getting people out the door as quickly as possible, freeing up bed space. So those are really immediate things. The fundamental thing that must be done is on workforce planning more generally. The NHS is one of the largest employers in the world, and I can't imagine any other significant employer not having a workforce plan that looks at current recruitment and retention challenges and what the future shape of the workforce would look like and has that reported regularly at board level in a way that is readily and easily understood and worked to. We could not get the government to agree to even commission an independent analysis of the numbers of staff that we need, let alone that kind of broader piece of work, even though the calls weren't just coming from me and from Labour. We had Jeremy Hunt on board. Um, I'm probably not saying I'm up with some of the stories at the moment, but you know, you can sort of know what he's talking about. Um, we had a big cross-party support in the laws. It went back and forth. Um, you know, I know why it is. It's not because Sajid Javid doesn't think the work would be really useful to him. Um, you know, I know it would be really useful going to Rachel Reeves and Pat McFadden saying, look, this is the challenge facing the workforce. This is what I need. Um, it's because the, the Treasury and, and the Chancellor are too short-sighted to commission such work. They would prefer the ostrich strategy of pretending the challenge doesn't exist in case they have to fund it. And the, and the health secretary is too weak to stand up to the chancellor. But that, that work, serious workforce planning is absolutely essential. Because mm. if you don't have a plan for the workforce of the NHS, you don't have a plan for the NHS full stop. Do you have a plan yet? And would you, for example, recruit more foreign staff? So uh, I think that the NHS workforce, in terms of its diversity and the fact it has reached across the world, is a wonderful thing. Uh, and I think people who come to this country to work in health and social care are very welcome. I do think it is a um, perverse irony that Boris Johnson accuses Labour of always wanting to pull the immigration lever to deal with Labour um, market um, challenges when that's exactly what he's been doing in health and social care. Um, and I also think... But you that, haven't told me what you would do. No, so I think, yeah, I think, we, I think our, yeah, that, so just to be clear, our yeah. priority would be developing and nurturing homegrown talent for two reasons. One, I think that is a good thing to do and there should, there should be and are great jobs for young people thinking about their future careers in health and social care. And secondly, probably more than any other area, I do think there are some ethical and moral challenges with taking really good qualified people from countries that desperately need them because we as a country can't be bothered to develop our own homegrown talent. I think that's unethical, immoral, and I think we can offer young people in this country great careers in health and social care, accepting, because we do in the Labour Party, 
that having an international workforce, whether in business or in public services, is a fundamentally good thing. It brings different perspectives. It brings diversity of outlook. And we've got lots to learn from other countries as well as lots to contribute to other countries. Would you give NHS staff a pay rise? The government's at the moment trying to hold down public sector pay. They are. I mean, I think the, the way in which to deal with the pain that people are feeling in their pockets is fundamentally to get inflation under control, get the economy growing, and to be in a position where across the private and public sector, people feel a sense of financial security and also able to, to kind of provide the kinds of opportunities that any family would want to. Um, I'm particularly worried in the context of where we're going on NHS and care pay uh, negotiations, particularly in NHS, um, staff on low pay. I think it is outrageous. I mean, I went to a, um, do a visit in Colchester and visited a food bank during the local elections, and they said a nurse had been in that week to, to, get, um, to get food. Um, I watched um, GMB members who work in the NHS in floods of tears in Parliament because they were struggling to make ends meet and living in awful kind of cramped bedsit accommodation, going out slogging their guts out during the day at work and then going at home to a place that is not decent and safe and comfortable, which has impact on their work. And, and then to see this spectacle of uh, NHS providers opening food banks in their facilities to serve their own staff, I think is just completely morally outrageous in a country as wealthy as ours. Um, so, and uh, so I'd the like to see... The consequence of your moral outrage is, is, is what, forgive me, I'm not trying to... Yeah, so I'd like to see, I want to make sure that when the pay review bodies consider um, you know, what kind of pay rise to recommend, that they're not just looking mm. at the workforce as a whole, they're looking in particular at people on lower pay bands. I mean, I'm not going to cut across pay negotiations as shadow health secretary in the way that I wouldn't if I was the health secretary. But it, I, I, and I actually, I think that the agenda for change unions um, mm. have, I think, taken a very, um, you know, hard-headed on behalf of their members, but also um, sensible and pragmatic approach to pay negotiations. And I hope that that's recognised and rewarded by both the pay review, review bodies and by the government. Mm. Let's come back to um, current, current politics. We've got these big by-elections coming up. Um, how, yeah, is Labour going to work with the Lib Dems on these, uh, these two elections? Uh, we d so in terms of Lib Labbery, um, we don't need to. I mean, it's, it really is a case of different horses for different courses. Mm. And when you look at the electoral map of the country, and the seats where the Lib Dems are in contention against the Conservatives and the seats where Labour's in contention with the Conservatives, they're just different places. And one of the things that's changed, particularly as a result of their um, foolhardy decision to go into coalition with um, the Conservatives, is that the old Lib Lab marginals aren't really there any longer either. So it's not that we sit in Westminster cooking up deals and that Keir and Ed Davey are sort of busy um, kind of forging the progressive alliance. I mean, there, there are no discussions, no deals, that's not where we are. Um, we, we, but it is different horses for different courses, and I'm sure we're putting as much effort into Wakefield as the, Conservat as the Liberal Democrats are into Tiverton. Mm. <laughs> and what about, what about your own ambitions? The, uh, the FT article I referred to on Israel had, um, it was treating Labour's saviour, the question mark, uh, at it. 
um, is, is the Labour leadership something? Yeah, so that headline was really irritating. So I went to... I went, terrific, I, went, I went terrific to, piece. I went, yeah. Oh, thank you. Yeah. But um, I was unable to share it because of the headline. Um, so I went to... Uh, the reason I was out in Israel was to look at um, Israel, particularly through the prism of technology, because it is, without doubt, one of the global leaders in terms of um, health tech, and there's lots to learn. And I thought, who better to take with me than the FT? Because FT readership, really interested in technology, really interested in kind of reform of health and social care through that lens, I suspect. And this will be a really good policy-driven piece. And then as the LL flame was taking off and Keir was doing his statement, I just thought, I know exactly where this is going. Um, all, I, all I would say, in, and that people yes, underestimate... This, this is wasn't, will you forgive me saying, a question about Israel? No, um, no, it wasn't. I mean, no. yeah, I mean, <laughs> I'm very happy being the health and social care secretary. I'm very glad I'm not the shadow minister for the Middle East. Um, I think I would... Nor, yeah. was, nor was that my question. The no, all the, I, no, the all question I'd say, no, all I'd say more seriously, though, is that, um, you know, Keir's going to lead the Labour Party into the next general election. If the Conservative Party is stupid enough to fill Boris Johnson in that contest, a race between Keir Starmer and Boris Johnson is one that I would relish um, and look forward to. And in terms of, you know, is West Street in the next leader, is Lisa Nandy or Rachel Reeves or Yvette Cooper or any of the other number of talented people that I work with the next leader, what people really underestimate in the Labour Party, and it's, imp and it's an important contrast for Conservatives, is that we're a team, we're, we are Keir's team, uh, we are united as a team in terms of winning the next general election. And so that's the job I hope and expect to do after the next general election is health and social care secretary, not anything else. Mm. And so, you, you, forgive me, uh, because it is so much in the news, you're confident that Keir Starmer's bold moral pledge um, to stand down if he, um, if he, if he gets a, a fine from the Durham police is not going to lead to a fine and him stepping down? Yeah, I, I don't think there's any reason to think that Durham police are going to draw a different conclusion now than they did before. Mm. Um, and I also think that um, when that transpires, Keir's moral authority will be even greater than it is already. I think the public already know Keir to be someone of decency and integrity. I think he's demonstrated it with, with that commitment to resign if he's fined, which did cut through the voters noticed. Um, and, you know, when he is cleared, and still there having pledged to resign and Boris Johnson is fined and in the mud and 40% of his MPs want him gone, he's still there. I think that helps voters to, to can't, you know, decide how they're going to vote in the next general election. Mm. Well, thank you, thank you for that. Let's go now to questions. Uh, we're going to take the mixture of, of, of ones here and online, but let me take one first from Mike Roberts um, because it's a, a huge subject which we have not touched on and that's on social care and he says, um, is it a Cinderella service or do you really mean it in terms of policy and resources in the future? So I think building a national care service is the unfinished business for Labour. Um, the last government white paper that was published by Gordon Brown and Andy Burnham was called Towards a National Care Service. And I, I, I think that if there's one thing that the pandemic has really shown is that the relationship between social care and health is inseparable. I already talked about the importance of dealing with um, delayed discharges um, from acute hospitals. I've already talked about the fact that there are people going through the front door of A&Es avoidably because social care in this country isn't good enough. And there's a fundamental thing here as well, which is all of us would want to be cared for in a way that helps us to live life to the full until the very end and not dread retirement. Um, all of us would want that for our parents and our grandparents. All of, all of us would want um, for, for, for our children, if they're disabled, um, to know that there'll be support there for them to live really good lives um, too. And the social care system doesn't do that. So 
my ambition is to build a national care service in this country. I'm very clear about the fact that this can't be delivered overnight. In fact, it can't even be delivered, I think, within one term of a Labour government. But my starting point would be, going back to the point I made about the importance of the NHS, my starting point would be the people um, who work in it, because the public understand that if you have underpaid staff, um, you don't recruit the best people, you don't retain the best people, uh, and that has um, consequences for quality of care. So I want to make sure that we pay staff well, they have decent terms and conditions, and really good career progression routes, because if you've got the right people work, it's, got, it's a, it's a people-based service. If you've got good quality, um, well-paid staff, um, in secure jobs with good working conditions and good progression, that not only leads to better quality of care, it also helps the NHS deal with its big elective backlog. And I'll tell you what, if you're looking for a really good levelling up policy for this country, who would benefit from paying social care staff a better, fairer wage, disproportionately working class women in every part of the country? So it's a good health policy, it's a good care policy, and it's a good levelling up policy. Thank you for that. Okay, let me take one uh, right at the back there. And then I'll come to the front. Uh, is it even going further back, Penny, behind you? Thanks very much. Jane Merrick from the I newspaper. Obviously, the Tories are in disarray at the moment. It's a great opportunity for Labour to cut through. What is the strategy? Do you just sit back and watch the Tories fight each other? Or do you, are you more proactive in coming forward with policy ideas? What is the, the way to cut through? So two things. One is, I don't think we need to spend too much time intruding on the Tories' public-private grief. Um, the Tory civil war is playing out. Um, that's giving us plenty of leaflet fodder. The public are noticing, and I think we should let them continue tearing strips off each other. Um, it's nice to see it happening to someone else. Um, and as for us, um, I think Keir is absolutely clear um, that the Labour Party cannot rely on the Tories' failure to deliver a Labour government. I think the local election results show the, the country has turned its back on the Conservatives, uh, but there's more for Labour to do to win over the hearts and minds of the British people to actively want a Labour government. Now, I, I think in terms of what we've achieved in just over two years of Keir being leader is remarkable. I mean, two years ago, you guys were asking, you know, will Labour exist um, in the future? And surely, he can't do Kinnock, Smith and Blair all in one term. So this is surely a two-term project for Labour. Now, just over two years onwards, people are saying, why aren't the polls pointing to a landslide Labour majority? Um, and I think the, the fact that, that you've raised your bar of expectations in, in the media, and I think this is true of the public, as well, broader public as well, I think is a sign of the progress we've made, but we know we've got more to do. And I think that's winning people over through the battle of ideas on cost of living, I think it's shown that where we're, where we're speaking to the priorities of the country, where we have a clear message, and where we repeat it ruthlessly to the point of dull repetition, the public notice and the message cuts through. And I think we've got to apply that more generally with a clear sense of what we want to do in terms of our priorities, and what we would deliver, and how we would deliver it. And I think that's exactly where the focus of Keir and the rest of us is. Um, but I, I don't want anyone to take any hint of complacency um, from Labour that because the Tories are imploding, we think that we're all kind of walking into government as a result of, of, of their failure. We're, we're determined to win on our own terms and we're determined to win a good majority as well. Thank you. Let's take another one here, uh, right in the front here. 
Thanks. Uh, Jay Jackson from Voltfast, drug policy think tank. Uh, would a Labour government take a health-based approach to drugs by, for example, putting the drugs minister into the Department of Health and Social Care and embracing services such as overdose prevention centres, dimorphine-assisted treatment, um, drug testing facilities, and expanding access to medical cannabis? Uh, it's, it's a good question, and one I would tread carefully on because it is um, a cross-departmental um, prior, you know, issue. Um, I think there is a distinction to be drawn between um, drug treatment and crime and punishment, um, and I think we need to look very carefully at the at the evidence. Um, and I, th I think it'd be good to have a, a kind of more rational, reasonable debate as a country about this. Um, and I'm, I'm kind of, from a health point of view, probably have the easier end of that in terms of thinking about, and it doesn't just apply to, to criminalise drugs, for example, it applies more broadly to public health in terms of smoking cessation, alcohol addiction, gambling, and a wide range of other sort of public health areas. Um, and, and I'd be very comfortable kind of really driving that agenda forward through the Department of Health. Uh, all I would say on the crime and punishment side of things, as far as I'm concerned, when drug dealers in this country decided to use children to ferry drugs around the country and engage in child sexual exploitation and criminalisation, um, that for me was the moment that the government should have stepped forward and sought to absolutely crush every drug dealer in the country. And I'm absolutely appalled at the way in which when you look at prosecutions, when you look at um, getting people from arrest through to prison, um, for serious organised criminal activity on county lines. I, I, you know, people say, oh, the war on drugs has failed. When it comes to county lines drug dealers, I don't think that the war on drugs has even begun. Thank, thank you for that. Let's go, let's go here on the aisle. Thank you. I'm Ben Glaze from the Daily Mirror. Um, Wes, is it fair to say in your answers to Bronwyn on NHS pay that you don't agree with an inflation-linked pay rise across the board? but you would perhaps for lower paid NHS staff, although not for consultants on six figures. Um, and how worried are you that Boris Johnson might still be there come a general election? Um, sorry, not there, and you faced uh, a new Conservative leader, sort of more known quantity, rather than the Prime Minister who, who's now discredited. Yeah, two things. One, um, yeah, so on that second point, I, I don't spend too much time worrying about who the next Conservative leader is partly because the Conservative Party has spent so much time telling us that there's no one to replace him. They have such a lack of self-confidence in their cabinet and in the people beneath the cabinet who could be future leaders that, um, you know, I mean, it, it, they've just told us that Boris Johnson is the best they have to offer the country. Um, and, and so sort of more for them. Um, I mean, on, on pay, I think there is a distinction to be drawn between um, people on higher salaries and people on lower salaries um, in the current climate. But... You know, I, I think you hit the nail on the head at the heart of your question about inflation. You know, these problems become a lot easier to solve um, if you solve inflation, if you get inflation under control. So I think the pressure has got to be on the Chancellor to get a grip on inflation, because unless he controls those inflationary pressures, everything else becomes so much harder, both in terms of overall government spending, but also in terms of making sure that people not only have more money in their pockets, but that money goes further. Um, and, you know, his... No wonder the Tories want to fight the next general election on culture wars, because they've already concluded they can't win the next election on the economy. I'm going to just bring in a couple uh, online. Um, one from Pooja Kumari, policy manager at the Royal College of Emergency Medicine, and she says, given how intrinsically linked the health and social care system is, 
how, how do you plan to address the crisis facing the emergency care system? Um, so, I mean, I think there are a number of challenges around A&E. Partly it's about um, the flow through hospitals. And, you know, one of, the, one of the big problems with ambulance response times, for example, at the moment is that you've got queues of ambulances outside of A&E. They can't turn around the ambulances fast enough. Why is that? Because A&E itself is clogged up. Why is that? Because there aren't beds available in the hospital, you know, with, with elsewhere in the hospital. Why is that? Because we can't get them out the door far enough, fast enough. So that's, you know, that's why you have to look at these things um, as a system. Look, you know, and this kind of goes to the heart of the elective care backlog, I guess, as well, um, and what I've said about using the private sector to bring down um, NHS waiting lists. Um, I think it is um, morally uh, unacceptable that we now have in this country a two-tier health system where the number of people paying to go private has effectively doubled over the course of a decade. And against the backdrop of rec record high NHS waiting lists, we've got a situation where those who can pay to jump the queue do, and those who can't are left behind. Now, I've had some criticism, particularly from the left, who said this is a kind of private privatisation agenda, and how, how could you, you know, uh, reconcile using the private sector to bring down NHS waiting lists? Uh, and the answer is twofold. One, um, I don't think the British people would buy a, an ideological argument that says because of our ideological principles, we think you should be waiting longer. And secondly, I do not think a situation where working class people who can't afford to pay private wait longer is a left-wing position. I think making sure that you are paying for people to get care as fast as possible within the NHS, whether that's using the private sector or not, is a left-wing position. Um, and it's about tackling inequalities. I also think that... Um, you know, we, we, and in fact, I think, the, I think private providers have said that where, where we are at the moment, they are doing less NHS work now than they were pre-pandemic, and they're in a position to deliver 130% uh, more uh, treatment in terms of capacity than, than they were pre-pandemic. So we could get hundreds of thousands of people treated faster um, if, if we're pragmatic about it. Um, in the longer term, um, speaking as a Labour politician who's fundamentally committed to the founding principles, publicly owned, publicly funded, free at point of use. My ambition is to make the NHS so good that no one ever feels forced to go private. I'd like to put the private sector out of business by making the NHS so good that private education, private, private uh, healthcare, like private education, would become redundant. Um, but in the meantime, um, I'm not prepared to be indifferent to or sanguine about or ideologically blinkered about the fact that people who can afford to pay private are jumping the queue and people who are poor are left behind. If we're serious about tackling health inequalities and if we're serious about realising Labour's founding mission in the NHS around universal healthcare free at the point of use, I'll use whatever means are necessary to make sure that everyone in this country gets the treatment they need when they need it. Okay, well, th thank you for that, and I'm really glad you raised it. You have said this um, um, uh, before about, about using the private sector to get down waiting lists, and you've spoken very eloquently just now about this, and we have a whole cluster of questions about this. We've had one... I was worried they weren't coming in, so no, I thought no, I'd better no, get no, it no, out I was just there. about to bring them all in. Anyway, uh, how, how would Labour support private sector health providers is on one flank, and then another one, these are both anonymous, would you defend the NHS against further privatisation and undo the power of private providers within the NHS? Um, which you've, you've come on to. Let me just slide in one more. We're on for David Talbot, um, sort of related to this. Labour's medicines for the many policy proposals for the 2019 general election alarmed the health and life sciences industry. How will Labour work with industry to ensure it enhances the sector post-coronavirus? 
Yeah, that's a really good question. Um, look, I think that life sciences is one of our great uh, national strengths, and it puts us on um, the map globally because I think UK life sciences are you know, widely recognised, and we saw the amazing contribution that British scientists made to the pandemic effort. Um, working in partnership, I have to say, with scientists right across Europe and around the world. Um, this is a kind of, this is a global community and, and particularly a European community, and we should see it as such. Um, but their, but, their, but in their, terms their of charge is that what, what Labour was saying ahead of the last, uh, in, in, in 2019 specifically, appeared threatening to them. It, 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 they felt that it wasn't going to give them the return that they need in order to do the business that they're... Yeah, what I care about is making sure that we get um, access to great quality treatments, that we get a good price for it, and that we're creating the conditions in this country in which scientists can make new breakthroughs and bring new products to, um, to, the, to, to the public, whether that's um, new medicines or new technology and treatments. That's what I'm interested in. Um, and I think one of the things about the NHS and one of the bits of unrealized potential of the NHS is it's um, because of the nature of the NHS as a system, it's a closed system with a significant um, population, a diverse population. I think that means that we have a lot to offer um, in terms of clinical trials, in terms of technological developments and innovation, and that puts in a really good position to get a good deal on price as well. So I'm more interested in kind of leveraging well on price and making sure we get good value for money than I am pretending that somehow we would be developing better treatments and better innovation if it was all state-owned and state-provided. Um, you know, you need to provide the space for innovation in technology and medicine and pharmaceuticals uh, and you know, uh, in terms of public ownership, I'd have much higher priorities of, of areas where you could actually make um, a real difference in terms of the quality of public service provision, in terms of um, the price um, to, to citizens um, if things are publicly owned. And, you know, I think that's where I'm on sort of pharmaceuticals and life sciences. Okay, thank you. Let's come back to the room. Okay, on the aisle towards the back. Um, I'm Billy, just a student. Um, you seem to suggest earlier that one of the reasons, or the root reason, for the lack of many reforms in health and social care going through is because the Treasury was too powerful and too unwilling. So do you think there's a case to be made for the Treasury being split up, as is done in many other countries? Um, if I did, I wouldn't say so, because I'd have to see Rachel Reeves when I get back to work. And um, I'm not sure how she would feel about me breaking up their department before she's walked through the front door. Um, I, I, think, I think what I would say, though, is... But actually, uh, joking aside, I mean, that's what you have to do as Secretary of Health, is beat down the door of the Treasury, because an awful lot of this is about money. Yeah, that's true. Um, uh, but I think, I think before you get, uh, you know, and maybe, may, you know, th this is not a new argument, is it? I mean, this, this goes back to Harold Wilson. Um, but uh, I think the, the important thing is trying to get the Treasury to think a bit more long-termist. And I do, I do understand why... Um, when people come along with a kind of, you know, I've got a really good investor save, you know, for every three pounds you invest in healthcare, you know, every one pound you invest in healthcare, you get three pounds back, or, for, you know, it applies right across the board for every, you know, pound you invest in education or in universities, you get X pounds back. I can understand why the, the Treasury are a bit cynical about that um, and take a kind of harder-headed approach to, to um, ministers and officials when they come along with yet another investor save proposal 
but I, don't, I do think one of the big problems with government and with um, public finances and with the economy and with, with economic planning and um, you know, driving economic growth is the short-termism of the Treasury and the way it thinks um, about how and where to invest. Um, and notionally, Bayes could be a counterbalance to that and could be a real economic driver and engine in the way that I would argue the biz department was when Peter Manderson led it. It was probably the closest we've come to since um, you know, Harold Wilson's government of there being a, a, you know, a big, big political figure leading a department that's largely about industry and the economy and helping to drive that. Um, we, uh, I'm afraid, um, you know, I, without being unkind, I don't person running the business department at the moment and very you know yesterday and strange as everyone was saying that Kwasi Kwarteng's job had been offered left right and centre to conservative MPs in order to stop them voting against um, uh, Prime Minister Joe who knows how long he survived um, but but you know the, I think the big problem with Bayes beyond the personalities is you've got a department called industrial strategy that doesn't have an industrial strategy and doesn't seem to believe in one and I think you know if, if, when, if you're not going to reform the treasury structurally in the way you mentioned I think the culture needs to change and the business department really needs to pull its finger out and start driving industrial strategy in the way that would help the long-term health and productivity of the economy. Let's go, go here on the aisle. Hi, Greg Parson. I'm just a retiree. Um, money's important, but so is the knowledge of the people in the NHS. In 1990, when faced with Thatcher reforms, the NHS organized a simulation called Rubber Windmill from which Kenneth Clark learned slowed down the reforms and introduced slow takeoff. In 2016, the NHS, faced with the threat of SARS, organized Exercise Signet, from which Jeremy Hunt learned nothing. Why, why is it that the that secretaries of state and political leadership and Richmond House have rejected learning from practice in the NHS? And what will labor do to make learning an intrinsic part of your political leadership? Yeah, that's a really, really great question, and it's why it, it goes right to the heart of why I was so reluctant to get into a conversation about structural reform, because I think, um, you know, I was criticising the Treasury for short-termism. Let's do a bit of self-criticism as politicians. Electoral cycles and, and the culture of reshuffles makes politics in this country incredibly short-termist. You have this kind of merry-go-round of ministers um, around government departments and even shadow ministers. Um, you then look at the civil service and one of the ways in which the, 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 um, the profession is sold is that you can have a range of different opportunities across different areas of government public policy. So you've got a whole range of you know, movement around the whole of government. So there isn't a degree of, always a degree of continuity there. Um, and we wonder why um, you know, systems become so chaotic and things don't join up. And before programs have had a chance to, to bed in, um, they've been uprooted. I mean, I, I, it's sort of beyond my remit of my brief, but I think one of the biggest pieces of vandalism that, well, it relates to my brief, actually, so it'll be my excuse later if I'm told off. Um, you know, the, the, one of the biggest bits of vandalism this government did was when it um, set fire to Shorestart. Um, and after, after they basically bonfired the programme, the research came out saying how much impact it had been having, including, contrary to some people's claims, um, amongst families where children are most disadvantaged. Um, and, and particularly when you're thinking about, you know, some of the things that I'm really interested in, in terms of healthcare inequalities, life chances in terms of healthcare and education and more broadly, 
this stuff takes a long time to bed in. And, you know, whether it's education reform or health reform, you know, you're, you're judging the progress you're making years down the line if you're doing it properly. But the problem is by then, everything's changed all over again. And that's why I kind of approach this job with a degree of humility when it comes to thinking about structures um, and genuinely wanting to listen to and engage um, with professionals who work in the space. Because ultimately, as politicians, we are, yes, we're leaders, but we're also custodians and stewards. We're passing through, and it's our job while we're there to do some good and to make some difference and to hand the system on in a better shape than we found it. Um, and I think that you know, while the last Labour government wasn't perfect, I think on so many areas, particularly in terms of public services, what we inherited and what we handed over was unrecognisable. And similarly, what the Conservatives inherited in 2010 and what they're handing over now is also unrecognisable. We've gone from the highest patient satisfaction in the NHS's history and the lowest waiting list to the lowest patient satisfaction since 1997 and the highest waiting list. And I want to make sure that we do a better job when we're next in. Can we come over here uh, by the fireplace? Hi, um, Caitlin Tilly from Pulse magazine. Um, what would you do to solve the crisis in general practice? I know you mentioned fixing the pension rules, um, but what about the recruitment crisis and also the violence and abuse that GPs are facing at the moment? Yeah, that's a good question. Um, uh, uh, so I'm thinking really carefully about if you, if you were to ask me what's the one bit of the system that is in most urgent need of reform beyond social care, I would say primary care. And one of the things that I've found um, potentially exciting since taking on this job is that GPs agree. And I don't think they will mind me saying that GPs have not been famous in the history of the NHS for wanting to see ref big reform of primary care. But I think there is an acceptance that the primary care model is broken the new entrants to general practice, and perhaps even more importantly, people who might have entered general practice but are choosing not to, want very different careers and opportunities from the type they have now. And I think that there will always be a role for the family doctor. There will always be people who want to see their GP face-to-face, -face, and they should always be able to. Um, but I think there are also big technological opportunities to try and um, unclog the front door to the NHS, which I think is what primary care fundamentally is, um, to, to reduce GPs' workload. And I think there is an appetite amongst GPs to play a much greater role in terms of population health and active prevention. And I think if you can align the people with the technology in the right way, that's potentially a really exciting career where someone who's retiring as a GP will look back on their career thinking about both the individuals they've met over the course of their career whose lives they've changed and lives they've touched, which I think is a big motivation for lots of GPs. But they might also look back and think, well, I'm really proud of the fact that in the time that I've been a GP in this particular community, the rate of diabetes has decreased by 10%, or um, that I've made a really big difference to women's health in the community um, and quality of gyne you know, gynecological uh, provision. And you know, that whatever it might be, I think that um, we've got to provide a different kind of structure to primary care, both for the benefit of patients and their experience and outcomes, which leaves a lot to be desired at the moment, if we're honest, um, but also makes general practice a really exciting um, place for someone starting out their career to be. Okay, thank you. I'm going to take one from one of my IFG colleagues, Sam McCrory, 
who says, uh, who's obviously on the, watching the news minute by minute, saying, Sajid Javid said today, we have a blockbuster healthcare system in the age of Netflix. He said it was no longer simply an option to stick with the status quo. He said large scale changes were needed in, in data and technology. Do you agree? Yeah, but so, so what? I mean, and so I think it's fair sometimes when, you know, as opposition politicians, we often get the question, so what would you do? And, yes, and, and there are yes, lots of, yeah, and, and, yeah. and you spoke quite a lot of time talking about that. And, and, you know, there have been areas this morning where I've been more specific than others, areas where I've been honest about the fact that we're still thinking it through. And one of the things I think we should be sometimes a bit more confident about in opposition is saying, we're still working that out. We've got some time on our side because we're not in government yet. And I think that's okay. And I think we should be less defensive about it because I'd rather get it right and do it right and make sure the manifesto is achievable and deliverable than make it up as we go along. I think it's slightly absurd that you know, 12 years into a government, um, we have government ministers who kind of talk in to the biggest generalities without kind of real plans to really sort of deliver anything. I mean, I mean, the number of reviews that are underway at the moment, which then seem to hit the shelf as soon as they're published. I mean, I mean, we just talked about um, you know primary care. I mean, we went from it, I think it went from being a sort of a review to an update to a stop. I mean, you know, the, the stop. I mean. What, what are we, what are you, why are you doing a primary care stock take when you're 12 years into government and the system's in crisis? Where's your primary care delivery? Not even answer, where's the primary care delivery? So of course, like by all means challenge us and people should scrutinize what we're saying and doing in the run up to the election. And there will be times where we say, I think fairly and robustly, do you have to wait? Um, we'll, we'll, you, you will put it in the manifesto or we'll be announcing that at a conference or we'll be announcing that next year or we're not saying that today because it's a busy news week and Boris Johnson's all over the front pages. That's a perfectly reasonable thing for an opposition to do. But we've got a government that, you know, is, is not governing and doesn't have answers. It just has generalities. I mean... Generalities, but in that, in, that, in that quote is a point first saying the NHS is not as good as it should be, as we would all like it to be. Um, you know, quite a direct charge, as you said, from someone in the, in the, in the government. Um, and then he is also hoping to do some things with technology and data and so on. And having a, uh, hanging over all this conversation, I have to say, as I, as I step away after this, we're coming right to the end, is going to be for me the question of what you intend people to think about the money that is going to go on the health service. Because you talked a lot about structure. Governments uh, do often do that. Uh, what you've described about governments' plans, or then some of them coming late, all that is true as well. But what should the people in this country expect? As, you know, as, should they expect that more of GDP is going to go on this? That what they want, this national religion, you call it, this love of the NHS, to be realistic, this is going to take more money, a lot more money than is now being spent on it, and other things will have to give. But, but my argument is it doesn't need to if you spend money in the right way and if you reduce the cost pressures on the NHS over time. I think, I think, being honest, it probably requires more money up front, but it's got to be with the objective of reducing costs further down the line. So take chronic disease, for example. You know, that is a huge challenge to the future sustainability of the NHS. If you're not doing prevention, if you're not promoting public health, then you do have things like diabetes, obesity, mm. um, a whole range of other um, conditions which are entirely preventable and where we know what needs to be done. And the excitement for me around technology and around data is that this offers us the chance to revolutionise people's um, uh, control over their own healthcare, their own choices. You know, people, um, 
you know, people can order a takeaway at a touch of a button and expect it to be delivered within 15 minutes. People can't even book a GP online. When I was in Israel and I showed, them the, uh, showed people the NHS app, people laughed. Um, I, I just, so, I, I mean, it's lovely that Sajid Javid has discovered that the NHS isn't as good as it should be. And it's lovely that he's discovered that there's some technology out there that maybe we should do something about data. I didn't hear him actually saying much just, was it last year? When, you know, when basically the GP workforce kicked off about sharing patients' data and kind of the protectionist wing of the providers swung around to stop anyone talking about data in a sensible way, the government crumbled. Like, one of the biggest advantages to the NHS is data. One of the big advantages to us is data. And, and the argument I would make to both the GP workforce and to the country is that in the same way that we pay into the NHS on the understanding that it will benefit us when we need it, but it will also benefit others when they need it, and there's a sh shared collective view about how we um, pay for and deliver healthcare in this country, it's the same with data. I'll share my data into the system, which then allows the healthcare system to understand mm. the population better, to do population health better, to do prevention better, which benefits everyone, but I might also receive in return very personalised advice, whereas we know you've only got one kidney, um, and so we might give you some kind of focused advice around things like diabetes and kidney disease prevention. Um, you know, I might have um, an accident and, you know, I, I'm, you know, I might injure my knee, it's really important for me to keep walking, and after five days or so, um, the app I keep in my pocket notices that I'm a bit sedentary, mm. and I might get a push notification saying, we notice you've, you, you're not walking so much today, mm. are, are you in pain, do you need to come and see a GP? That's the kind of, da that's the kind of data revolution that mm. we could we could utilise and harness in the NHS to deliver more personalised healthcare for the individual, better public health promotion and prevention for the general population. But we've got health secretary who to, who's today saying, oh, data's really important, but was missing in action last year because some GPs kicked off. And, you know, that's the other message I'd send to the NHS, you know. Uh, uh, we're we're going to have to bring yeah, this well, to but The final thing I'd say yeah, to the NHS yeah. is that, you know, fundamentally, how do I see myself as a person who wants to be the next health secretary? It's as the patient champion. And we are all there to serve the patients. And so, you know, provider interest, producer interest has to take second fiddle. It's about the patient, putting the patient first. And that's the kind of health secretary I would be. And in the time he's got left, that's the kind of health secretary Sajid Javid should aspire to be too. Worst treating on that. Very, thank you very much. Terrific questions online and, and more here. And um, I'm so sorry I couldn't get them all in. One from Katie Stiles of Canterbury on carers and from Dr. Sue Easton in, in uh, from the Lincoln Institute for Rural Health on Rural Health Trust. We will have to find another time to explore all those. But thank you very much for the terrific questions here. And we're treating. Thank you. No, thanks for having me. It's been good fun. Thank you. Thank you.